Attorney General Keith Ellison was in the courtroom for much of jury selection. He's Minnesota's top cop and before that served in Congress and the state legislature. He spent years prior to that working as a civil rights attorney. Let's look at exactly what this is being offered to prove. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Frank leads the trial team and heads the trial division at the AG's office. He's flanked by a rotating cast of 10 lawyers. That's what we're asking for at this point. Neil Katyal has appeared via Zoom. During the Obama administration, Katyal served as an acting solicitor general. Steve Slisher is on loan from his law firm. He worked as a federal prosecutor for 13 years. Having an expert who can explain medically what they are is helpful to the jury. Another special prosecutor, Jerry Blackwell, is known for winning a posthumous pardon for a man wrongfully convicted of rape in connection with the Duluth lynchings of 1920. The defense filed a single highly unusual expert report. Sundeep Ayer, clerk for Justices Souter and Breyer at the U.S. Supreme Court and for Brett Kavanaugh when he was a federal judge. Also on the team, Lola Velasquez-Aguillo, Nathaniel Zielinski, Victoria Joseph, Harrison Kilgore, and Danielle DeSaunier-Stemple. She's not responsive right now, bro! And there will be a long line of witnesses, including Donald Williams. He was there the day George Floyd died. He's expected to be a key prosecution witness. He saw part of what happened and also has a mixed martial arts background. Hennepin County Medical Examiner Andrew Baker will likely face a grilling from the defense after he was quoted by county officials as saying, absent other factors, he would have classified Floyd's death a drug overdose. And the teenage girl who filmed the bystander video of George Floyd's arrest, Darnella Frazier, will testify for the state. An off-duty firefighter will also testify about what she saw when Floyd was in custody. Your Honor, I think the court hits the nail kind of square on the head. And last but not least, Eric Nelson represents Derek Chauvin. He's a managing partner in Minnesota's largest criminal defense firm. He's described by a friend as cool under pressure, prepared, and an avid baseball fan. He's represented clients in other high-profile murder cases. And we really haven't heard from the defense team in this case. They've been very quiet. Attorney General Keith Ellison held a press conference when announcing the charges, but other than that, we haven't heard much from him either. Now, one person we are hearing from exclusively is the executive director of the Minneapolis Police and Peace Officers Association. That is an organization that has members who are 911 dispatchers, police officers, things like that, and they lobby the legislature for pro-law enforcement legislation. That organization also has a legal defense fund, and it's covering the legal fees for the four officers charged in this case. Brian Peters told me that he actually believes that all of the officers have a pretty good defense. I can't say too much about specifics about the case, but you will see what training uh, officers were given at the Minneapolis Police Department. You'll see uh, quite a bit of uh, evidence regarding the um, medical examiner's report. And, uh, you know, those are important um, aspects of the case that really haven't been discussed uh, thoroughly. And I think the uh, public will be able to see a lot more of those facts and make a determination um, on their own. We'll have much more of that exclusive interview on the next edition of Law and Crime Daily. Brian?
Thanks, Anjanette. Joining us today is civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey and Terry Austin. DeWitt, in a trial, optics is everything. So is this the AG throwing the book at Chauvin, or is it David versus Goliath? Uh, in some regards, I think it's a little bit of both. Now, I mean, yeah, optics are everything, and it can um, be uh, perceived by the folks on the jury, and at least the viewers of the trial, that the prosecution is coming down really heavy on uh, Mr. Chauvin. And, you know, that could make it very tough to uh, go hard against him or, uh, you know, uh, be uh, very direct in, in, the, in their conviction. But, you know, we'll have to see just how the evidence shakes out. Now, Terry, 11v1 sounds like an extreme soccer game. Uh, what are your theories on why there's so many prosecutors here to prosecute Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd? You know, look, I know that if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, you could really spoil, you know, the dinner, basically. But I think if you make sure that everyone has a role, it should not be a problem. And what I would do if I were the prosecution with all of these people available, have one person focus on the opening and the closing. Have someone else focus on appealable grounds. Have someone who can do the motions. I mean, there are so many things that you could just sparse out here to make sure that the case is tried. And this is a high-profile case. I think that you need to make sure that everyone is on the top of their game. I'd even have someone who is focusing on the jury charges. So, so I think there's enough work to go around. Exactly. And Jeanette, did Brian Peters say whether Chauvin's lawyer is working with the other lawyers for the three other officers? Yeah, from our conversation, it sounds like they are all working together, kind of exchanging information. You have to remember that at the very beginning of this case, all four officers were set to be tried together. And then Chauvin's case was severed from the case involving the other three officers, so he was going to be tried by himself. So um, they are all being kind of paid by the same organization, the MPPOA, and they are exchanging information. Yeah, when it makes sense, it does take a lot more than just one defense attorney to kind of hold the weight of an entire trial with this magnitude. And be sure to tune in to the Law and Crime Network for gavel gavel coverage of the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the death of George Floyd. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, the sister of Chad Daybell's ex-wife, Tammy Daybell, speaks out about Chad marrying Lori right after her sister's death. But first, the nurse sentenced to three years in jail after admitting to cleaning up after a murder sees her jail time cut in half. Johnny Depp for one of his cases in British court. Depp has lost his last-ditch appeal in a libel case against a UK tabloid. Depp was suing The Sun for an article calling him, quote, a white-beater for domestic violence allegations against his ex-wife, actor Amber Heard. A three-week trial last year ended with the judge dismissing Depp's claim, saying the headline was substantially true. Heard testified she was in fear for her life because of Depp's abuse. Depp appealed, maintaining that it was him who was the victim. The judge rejected his argument. Lawyers for the Sun hailed the ruling as a victory for the freedom of the press and for victims of domestic violence everywhere. An Idaho woman who admitted to helping her boyfriend dispose of his fiancée's body has been resentenced. Flight instructor Kelsey Barrett went missing on Thanksgiving Day in 2018. Her fiancé, Patrick Frazee, was found guilty of first-degree murder based on large part of the testimony of his girlfriend, Crystal Kenny. 
Kenny said she got rid of Barrett's cell phone after Frazee beat her to death with a baseball bat. Kenny was sentenced to three years. She appealed on the grounds that her sentence was unconstitutional, saying she was not advised of her Blakely rights. The defendant was charged with a class six felony. So in Colorado, the presumptive sentence is up to 18 months. But what the judge did was the judge found aggravating circumstances and increased that sentence up to three years. Well, there is this Supreme Court case called Blakely. And essentially what it says is that if a defendant is going to receive a sentence that is above the presumptive range, then based on certain facts, then a jury must find those facts beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not something the judge can just, you know, eyeball and say, oh, this case is particularly egregious. Kenny was resentenced to 18 months in prison. The judge said in court that he believed the punishment was too short for Kenny's cold, calculated, and cruel actions. With credit for time served, Kenny will get out in four months. Back with us is civil rights attorney Dewitt Lacey and Terry Austin. Terry, looks like the judge was bound by law to give a max of 18 months, but what do you make of his remarks afterwards? You know what, Brian? I totally agree with Judge Sells. I think the punishment was too short. There's no question that she was cold and calculated. She really could have, and the judge said this, she could have stopped this crime because she knew it was going to happen because her boyfriend was asking her repeatedly to help him kill, you know, his ex-fiancee. So I definitely think that she should have gotten as much as she possibly could have and that, you know, what is occurring is this 18-month sentence is really going to be applied and she's already going to have time served. She's only going to serve about four more months. So, you know, I think she got off very lightly for a very serious, heinous crime. I, I, I totally get that, Dewitt, but on the flip side, she testified helping to get a murder conviction without the promise of a deal and got the maximum penalty for the charge she was charged with. It's not like she got something lower. Could the issue probably be that she's getting out too soon? Well, that's certainly what the court seemed to think. The court believed that she uh, was getting off too leniently, uh, and he wanted to make sure that the message was sent loud and clear that anybody who engages in this type of behavior, and especially Miss Kenny, uh, was going to be subjected to some uh, pretty, uh, I guess, harsh uh, punishments. Uh, but she, the law only allows her to get the 18 months. The court just doesn't have the right then to, uh, as was said in, in the preview, to eyeball it and add on some uh, enhancements just because uh, he felt so passionate about it. Yeah, oftentimes when you see things like this, like we're in the past, we've looked at Jennifer Dulos's case with Jennifer's Law, maybe we'll see a law coming out of this case where there'll be greater punishments for things like this, because I think we can all agree, I don't know, driving and going down to this distance and participating in the cleanup this way is definitely something that maybe should have more than 18 months in jail, but we'll keep eyes on that. Coming up on Law & Crime Daily, the accused of Boulder store shooter's first court appearance, the charges prosecutors could be adding to the case. Plus, the doomsday cult couple back in the news, the family members speaking out for the first time in an interview you don't want to miss. Next. so-called doomsday cult suspect is speaking out. Terry Austin has been closely following the saga and explains why this new interview is so shocking. Brian, so many people have been affected by this case, including Tammy Daybell's only sister, Samantha. Lori Vallow and her husband, Chad Daybell, are facing charges 
for an alleged plot to conceal and destroy evidence while Vallow's children were reported missing. Authorities discovered the bodies of J.J. and Tylee Ryan buried in shallow graves on Daybell's property. Before Lori, Chad was married to Tammy Daybell for 29 years. Tammy died in October 2019. At the time, Chad said she died in her sleep. But law enforcement now say her death is suspicious and have exhumed her body for an autopsy. Tammy's sister says she was shocked when she found out Chad had married Lori just weeks after Tammy passed away. She told NBC's Dateline that Chad did appear emotional after Tammy's death. I got a phone call from Chad telling me that she had passed away in her sleep. How do you process something like that? Um, you don't. I mean, like, there's just so many thoughts running through your head. And a lot of it was like, no, that, that didn't happen. What did Chad say happened? That she'd been sick and had a coughing fit and passed away. How did he sound on the phone? He sounded upset and devastated. I mean, I was crying and he was crying and... Yeah, it was a really hard moment. Back with us is civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey. Terry, there's so much smoke in this case. It's surprising there's not an Amazon forest size fire. Um, how does this interview affect the big picture for Valo and Daybell? Look, I think the big picture is six people around Lori and Chad have died under suspicious circumstances in just two-year period here and you know we have of course we have JJ and Tylee we have Charles Lori's ex-husband we have Tammy Chad's previous wife we have Alex Lori's brother and don't forget we have Joseph Ryan who was Tylee's father so it's unclear how many of these deaths will get into the current case here in fact you know it might be more prejudicial than probative and we don't even have the murder charges yet but I do think that these deaths are suspicious and that at some point it's going to come back to haunt Chad and Lori. And if they can tie it to this cult belief and all of these other deaths, who knows? Maybe it will get into the case. Uh, that's kind of my question. I know about these facts. You know about these facts. Our viewers know about these. But will these get into a potential trial for either Chad Daybell or Lori Vallow Daybell? Uh, I don't think so, uh, because the trial right now is about the deaths of the children. Uh, and uh, the death of, of, you know, Chad's former wife uh, is not really going to be relevant, although uh, it is going to be very high profile. Um, I can't really think of a, a circumstance in which it would be relevant uh, to the death of the children, Joshua and Ty Lee. Um, uh, but I, I would imagine uh, the prosecution is going to do everything they can to imply uh, uh, something about these other deaths. And, and I agree, you know, from first blush, the very first time I heard about this case, none of it passed the smell test for me. Yeah, I, I can't think of a way this comes in. I, I agree with you, but I bet you the prosecution is thinking of a way that this comes in. I will make sure to keep an eye on that case. When we come back, the first look at the Boulder store shooting suspect after the deadly rampage that left 10 people dead. When, when to expect more charges next. shooter appeared in court for the first time as prosecutors announced their plan to file more charges. 
Ahmad Al-Issa wheeled into a Colorado courtroom Thursday morning. The suspect going before a judge on 10 counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. Any statement that you do make, uh, may be used against you. Boulder police say Alalisa went on a deadly shooting rampage inside a King Super grocery store on Monday afternoon. Right now you're being held without bail. Ten people were killed in the shooting, including 25-year-old Ricky Olds. Ricky's uncle describing her as the light of their family. And Ricky was pursuing her dream of being a store manager at King Supers. Ricky's co-worker and friend says Ricky's nickname was Wendy for her long braids. Ricky at work, she would dance to the music. Um, we called it her gorilla dance. She would flail her arms. Anything to make you smile, to make you laugh. If you were having that bad day, Ricky was there to make it better. Also killed was Boulder police officer and father of seven, Eric Talley. The Boulder police chief becoming emotional while talking about Talley, saying the shooting is personal. I just had that officer's whole family in my office two weeks ago to give him an award. Law enforcement honoring Talley with a police escort on Wednesday as his body was taken to a funeral home. His cruiser, now a memorial outside the police station. The flowers line the fence outside the grocery store as a community awaits justice. Uh, the people have filed a uh, complaint and information uh, charging 11 counts. Alalisa's public defender told a judge her client suffers from an unspecified mental illness and asked to postpone his next court date. Our position is that we cannot do anything until we are able to fully assess Mr. Alisa's mental illness. Alalisa's defense said they cannot assess him until they receive discovery. Prosecutors say the investigation is still ongoing. I will say the crime scene has not yet been uh, completed in terms of processing. We will be filing additional charges in the next couple weeks. You've discussed this with your client, and he understands that he'll continue to be held without bond uh, during that interceding three months or so. Yes, Your Honor. But Alisa's defense attorney is already talking about competency, trying to get him assessed. In a case like this, should we be expecting to see a potential insanity defense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what they're going to go for. As a matter of fact, I don't see that there's any other uh, way uh, that they could uh, have uh, some type of uh, legitimate defense uh, come time of trial. Uh, uh, insanity is, is what they're going to go to. It, it seems to be what they're already positioning for, and I think you could expect that coming. Now, Terry, more charges to come. I would think they'd be stacking them on top of each other because there's no death penalty in Colorado, but what charges do you expect to be filed, and would or should there be plea negotiations in a case like this? Well, I don't think there should be any plea negotiations, but I do hope they stack up the charges here in addition to the 10 counts of murder and the one attempted murder count, they could charge him with resisting arrest. They could possibly charge him if it turns out there were any drugs that he had in his system. And we know that he purchased this gun that they could investigate to determine whether or not it was legally purchased. And, you know, we also know, Brian, that the FBI has him on a list because he was previously known to be linked with another individual. So there could be some charges after the fact here, if we turn out that there's some information there for the FBI coming up with this uh, additional link to this additional person. Absolutely. And like, I, and like we've said before, March 23rd of 2020, the death penalty in Colorado was abolished, making the 22nd state in the country to do so. So expect to see multiple charges and also the word consec as the prosecutor tried to consec those charges on top of each other. DeWitt, Terry, thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us here at Long Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America.
I'm Dan Abrams. In the exploding legal and true crime genre, Law and Crime is the only network that has it all. Good evening and welcome. This is a complicated case. Don't really jump to conclusions. Welcome to Prime Crime Tonight. Another day of drama between both sides. From multiple live trials daily to original and compelling programming, the Law and Crime Network is everywhere. And we invite you inside the jury box. This is Law and Crime. Evan Rachel Wood calls for domestic violence reforms after allegations of abuse against musician Marilyn Manson. Why she's testifying in support of Jennifer's law in the case of missing mother Jennifer Dulos. I was groomed into an abusive relationship. Attorneys for NFL player Deshaun Watson responds to sexual assault allegations, calling them unlawful and wrong. Four more women come forward, the quarterback now facing 16 lawsuits. An Ohio sheriff is sentenced to prison time for stealing thousands of dollars, confiscated as evidence. Plus, a jury is seated as we await the start of the Derek Chauvin murder trial. We asked famed forensic pathologist what caused George Floyd's death. He did not just succumb to fentanyl during the course of the struggle. Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome everyone to Law and Crime Daily. I'm Brian Buckmeyer along with Terry Austin. The jury in the trial of Derek Chauvin has been selected. Law and Crimes' Kim Johnson is in Minneapolis to explain what steps the court is taking to prepare for opening statements. Brian, security continues to be tight here at the Hennepin County Courthouse, even though court is in recess now that a jury has been set. But on Monday, 15 jurors will come back to this courthouse to be sworn in. But not all of them. Only 14 will be sworn in. COVID concerns are limiting the amount of alternates. Judge Peter Cahill is allowing for this trial. Cahill seated a man who works as an accountant. However, he says he'll dismiss this 15th juror next week unless any of the others are unable to serve. The judge says physical space constraints limits the number of alternates he can include. 14 will be seated. Uh, that's all we have room for. We could seat 15 if we had room, but uh, 15th juror, uh, as the last chosen, will be excused on Monday of the other 14. The whole point of this 15th juror was to make sure that we have 14 people show up on Monday. Nevertheless, I'm still not going to release the jury pool until the jury is sworn. Now, Cahill is taking safety precautions in the courtroom because of COVID-19. The jurors will be spread out and sit in individual desks during the trial. It took over two weeks for the judge and attorneys to go over more than 100 potential jurors. Once the jury of nine women and five men are sworn in Monday, the judge will release the entire jury pool. Now, Judge Cahill says that he expects this trial to take about four weeks, although it may go longer depending on delays. The jury will not be sequestered during the trial, but will during deliberations, Brian. Thanks, Kim. 
Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross is here to explain why George Floyd's cause of death is likely to be a key issue at trial. Thanks, Brian. Coming up this week on Brian Ross Investigates, cause of death. That's going to be the central issue in the murder trial next week of Derek Chauvin. The official autopsy of George Floyd did call it a homicide, but left the door open to say he also had a potentially lethal level of the drug fentanyl in his system. Dr. Wecht, who served more than two decades as the coroner and medical examiner in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, has been involved or consulted in some of the most high-profile death cases in recent memory, including Elvis Presley, Kurt Cobain, John Benet Ramsey. As you know, this case could well come down to the autopsy and the findings. Is it possible that he died of something other than the knee-to-neck restraint? Were there enough drugs in his system that could have killed him? Was the heart condition enough that could have killed him? My answer to your question, uh, succinctly to begin with, is no. I do not believe uh, that um, Mr. Floyd died uh, from fentanyl toxicity um, or from hypertensive arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease or a combination uh, of those two. Yes, it is true that the fentanyl level in this case was high enough to kill somebody. But it is also true that people with that level and higher levels do not die. I don't know what his tolerance level was that may, he may have built up over the years. The point is that when he was stopped by the cops uh, for that uh, counterfeit uh, money order, whatever it was, and so on, uh, he was uh, somewhat, uh, uh, you could say, aggressive. Uh, he was uh, resisting arrest, you could say. You know, those are other things. But that is not uh, the scenario that one would find of an individual who was going to succumb to fentanyl. He did not just succumb to fentanyl during the course of the struggle where, where just a, a moment or so before uh, he stopped breathing, before he stopped speaking, before he stopped making sounds, before he stopped making any movement, and then all of a sudden he died. That is not the way it would have happened in this case. And Dr. Weck, as you know, the official autopsy report does open the door a bit for the defense to argue, in fact, that's what killed him. It's not yes. definitive, is it? No, no, it's not definitive. And, you know, I don't want to say anything of a non-hominem nature, and I don't know the medical examiner, and I'm sure he's a competent forensic pathologist and so on. But, you know, uh, for a medical examiner to kind of smooth over a, a case involving a police-related death, that is about as unexpected and atypical as it would be. Well, Dr. Wick, are you saying then that the medical examiner essentially was trying to cover up for Derek Chauvin and the Minneapolis Police Department? I would not use the word cover up. Um, Sounds pretty uh, close. I would, I would use the phraseology kind of smooth over, kind of smooth over. Joining us today is former federal prosecutor Gene Rossi and Terry Austin. Gene, cause of death is the biggest issue here. How do you see either side tackling it? I love that that expert's comment. Smooth over. You know what I call it? He's covering up, okay? The medical examiner was viewing the evidence in a light most favorable to Mr. Chauvin, and rather than calling it a tomato, he called it a tomato, all right? But at the end of the day, I got to tell you, I said this last week, the jurors are going to look at that video, and for 8 minutes, 46 seconds, they're going to see with their own eyes that that knee was the major cause of that death. It could be fentanyl in his system. He could be an addict. 
But that knee to his neck, you can't get over that. You can have all the experts in the world, but that to me is where the rubber meets the road. Terry, smooth over, cover up, whatever you want to call it. The defense simply has to show reasonable doubt. Could this report maybe help or hurt them? Well, I do think that it will all be the medical evidence. That is the crux of this case. And I do think the video, I agree, the video is going to be a huge, you know, emphasis here. So, but let's look at the medical evidence. So you have the medical examiner, Dr. Baker, saying that, you know, he thinks that the death really could have been the drugs in his system or a heart problem. But then you have the family's doctor saying that, you know, perhaps the forensic, you know, expert here saying that it could very well have been the knee on the neck. And so I do think the jury's going to look at the medical expert. We have Fowler also who may be called. So we'll see what happens. But that video is going to play a huge role. Yeah, let's say a picture tells a thousand words and what can a video tell you? Be sure to tune in to the Law and Crime Network for gavel to gavel coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial in the murder of George Floyd. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, women of domestic abuse step forward in support of Jennifer's law in, in memory of missing mother Jennifer Dulos. But first, the sentencing of a former Ohio sheriff, the crime, the cover-up, and the pleas for mercy to the judge as he's sent to jail for years. in drug raids and then trying to put it back. Law and Crime's Anjanette Levy is in Pike County, Ohio for the hearing. Anjanette. Yeah, Brian, Charlie Reeder really became one of the public law enforcement faces of one of Ohio's largest ever murder cases. Now he's a prison inmate. It's a stunning fall from grace. I tried to talk to Reeder before he was sentenced. Are you going to have anything to say at all? No. The reader spoke actually during his sentencing. He claimed he didn't take the money seized in drug rates to spend it on gambling, as prosecutors had claimed. Reader painted himself really as a Robin Hood type character who took the money and gave it to charitable things such as a high school cheerleading car wash. He cried and begged the judge for leniency, saying he wanted to be around for his family and his father who was ill. There's nothing left for me to give were to take from me other than my freedom. I have and I now pray that the court will find mercy on me. And I beg the court, if they see fit to grant me community control, even with the strictest sanctions that I have proven to this court in the past two and a half years that I can abide by. The judge who sentenced Reader, she's actually new to the case. The judge who had been presiding over it since the beginning had to step away from the case because he's battling an illness. Judge Patricia Cosgrove is known for handing down very tough sentences to sheriffs in public corruption cases. She questioned Reader at length about why he took the money and responded to his claims of receiving treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder because of the crimes that he's seen. We all choose our profession, and we have to conduct ourselves with integrity. It cannot be underestimated the damage that you have caused to the citizens of Pike County, to law enforcement who every day get up, uh, face the same sort of stresses that you do, 
they, they go all home at night, uh, they get up in the morning, uh, they're feeling, they don't know if they're going to come home. The sacrifices that these men and women make, um, I think you've made a mockery of them. Security was incredibly tight at the Pike County Courthouse. Federal agents, including U.S. Marshals, were there along with bomb-detecting dogs. There were some serious concerns about Reader's supporters showing up to protest and maybe some trouble coming from that. Now, Reader became known nationally following the 2016 murders of eight members of the Roden and Gilly families. The morning of the murders, Reader actually asked the Ohio Attorney General's office to lead that investigation because he was heading up such a small sheriff's office. Now, Reader's attorney said that he plans to appeal despite pleading guilty to half of the charges or so that he was facing. Uh, his attorney, Jim Bolger, told us that he believes that some of those counts should have been merged. Brian? Thanks, Anjad. Here to discuss the sentencing of disgraced ex-sheriff reader is former federal prosecutor Gene Rossi and Terry Austin. Terry, Gene, I already kind of know what you're going to say, but let me say this anyways. When I read Reader's story, I saw one of my own clients as a public defender, a person who had a regular life, was met with trauma, hit an addiction, gambling, and turned to a victimless crime. Maybe it's, again, the public defender in me, but I don't think jail solves this. Probation, maybe, but I don't see jail. Terry, your thoughts? Well, maybe it is the public defender in you, Brian, because, look, I'm as sympathetic as the next guy, but this guy was placed in a position of public trust. He was the Pike County Sheriff. You don't get higher than that. And he had a duty to protect and serve the people. So I agree with the judge. I think he betrayed that trust, and I think it doesn't matter that he eventually gave the money back, you know? Having said all that, I do have sympathy, and I do think that he should get counseling and understanding for his addiction, but I think he should serve jail time. Yeah, Gene, took about $14,000, returned almost 10000 of those dollars. What do you think? Oh, it's not the amount of money, although 14000 in Pike County is not an insignificant amount. But that judge and Terry hit the nail on the head. I once indicted a state prosecutor for violating... Brady and Giglio discovery rules and tampering with a witness. When you hold a position of trust, when you are the head honcho, the head sheriff in a county, and you take money from the till, what he did is he took money from people who were arrested. That is disgraceful. And I don't believe for a minute he took that money and gave it to charity. He did it because of greed, and he had the opportunity, and that man should serve three to five years. All right, and three years is the sentence he got. Um, I know that he did give a little bit of money back. Sorry, can't get to you right now, Anjanette, but we'll continue to follow this case and see how the sentencing and the appeal goes. Coming up on Law & Crime Daily, a new date means new lawsuits for NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson as 16 sexual assault complaints are filed against the Houston Texans. Plus, support for domestic violence reform after the assumed murder of mother Jennifer Dulos. The celebrity testimony, next. missing in 2019 and her body has never been found. Police arrested her husband photos Dulos, but he died months later of an apparent suicide. In 2017, Jennifer Dulos sought a restraining order and emergency custody of her five children. According to court records, she was denied because she was unable to show her then separated husband photos physically harmed her. 
This new bill seeks to expand the definition of domestic violence to include coercive control or non-physical forms of abuse. Actress and activist Evan Rachel Wood testified in support of the bill. Wood is accusing her former partner, musician Marilyn Manson, of sexually abusing her and says she too was a victim of coercive control. He used coercion to take photos and videos of my naked body and at times threatened to release them publicly without my consent, which I later came to understand is illegal and called revenge porn. He hacked into my phone and social media accounts so I could not reach out for help. He was monitoring me in a number of ways. I actually did try to get a restraining order and I, I was denied or told I wouldn't be able to obtain one because I didn't have any recent direct threats. Back with us is former federal prosecutor Jane Rossi and Terry Austin. Terry, thoughts on this movement and how they are defining uh, this form of non-physical abuse? Yeah, you know, I think it's important to make sure that you're looking at both mental, emotional, and also physical abuse. The group behind this law, they are local mothers, and they're dedicated to improving the family court system so that all forms of domestic violence are validated. So I agree with what they're doing. I think it's important, and I think that they are expanding the law so they include women who are abused no matter what type of abuse that is. Jean, sadly, reform often follows tragedy. How does an idea like punishing non-physical domestic abuse turn into a law that works? Well, you have a state senator from Greenwich, Connecticut, New Canaan, Connecticut, that has gotten a lot of uh, pressure from citizens to add this statute. My only concern with this law is this. How do you define coercive control? You have to be careful. Due process applies, federal and state cases, is the statute so vague, I think they need a little more meat on the definition of coercive control. It can't be so vague so that defendants, future defendants, aren't on notice as to what they can and cannot do. I think it's a good law. It has to be very carefully uh, structured and written. I would agree. You never want to get more people uh, criminalized for a broad law that has such a great meaning behind it. You want to get those people who are committing the acts in which you are creating the law for a perfect Perfect idea, both Gene and Terry. When we come back, 16 accusers file lawsuits against Houston NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson. What he says at least one of them is in it just for the money. shooter is giving more insight into the deadly rampage that killed 10 people, including a police officer. Ahmad Alisa is charged with 10 counts of murder. According to police, witnesses called 911 to report that a man was shooting in the parking lot, walked up to an elderly man, stood over him, and shot him multiple additional times. The suspect is then accused of entering the store and continuing to shoot. Responding officers reportedly found Officer Eric Talley deceased with what appeared to be a bullet wound to the head. Police say Alalisa removed his clothing inside the store, including a green tactical vest and his weapon. He's scheduled to appear in court for the first time Thursday morning. An Ohio woman accused of murdering her six-year-old son while trying to abandon him allegedly hogtied and gagged her three other children. Brittany Gosney is pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Prosecutors say the children were tied up for hours on the same day James Hutchinson was killed. Investigators say Gosney confessed to trying to abandon all of her children and believes she hit the young boy with her car while he was chasing after her. She's accused of dumping his body in the Ohio River. The boy's body has not yet been found. 
An attorney for an NFL player accused of sexual assault is calling claims by a dozen women harassment and plain wrong. Sixteen women have filed lawsuits against Deshaun Watson, the Houston Texans quarterback. Watson's lawyer, Rusty Harden, says he has strong evidence that shows one of the lawsuits is false and calls into question the legitimacy of the other cases as well. Harden released a signed affidavit by Watson's marketing manager, Brian Bernie. Bernie said he spoke with the plaintiff in the third case, and the woman attempted to blackmail Watson by demanding $30,000 in exchange for her indefinite silence about what she stated was a consensual encounter. According to the lawsuit, Watson hired the massage therapist in December 2020 after reaching out to the woman on Instagram. Watson is accused of forcing the woman to perform oral sex. Attorney Tony Busby is representing the woman and said last week that he plans to submit affidavits to police. These women who are stepping forward knew that they would face scorn and ridicule. They all agreed to plead for the minimal jurisdictional limits of the court, and they bring these cases for one reason only: stopping further misconduct from this defendant. Gene, the sheer number of alleged victims makes me think where there is smoke, there's got to be fire. Well, the way Busby is going about it in the court of opinion before the civil court, could that cause any problems for civil or criminal cases in the future? Well, it could cause a lot of problems for the criminal case, just like what they may have in the Derek Chauvin uh, trial, uh, murder trial. Uh, but but I, I think in this, in this instance, it will help the civil cases. I think it may hurt the criminal cases because they won't be able to get a, a fair and impartial jury. But bear in mind, we, we're not at the point where they're thinking of criminal charges. But I got to say, if uh, Mr. Watson is facing uh, 16 accusers, oh boy, uh, when you get into double digits, uh, it, it, that's extremely hard, a hard road to hoe uh, if you're the defendant in, uh, in a civil or a criminal lawsuit. Especially when there's a clear MO that all of these alleged victims are massage therapists or masseuse in one way, shape, or form. Terry, Deshaun Watson's lawyer keeps asking for the names of the Jane Doe's to build a defense. Could that possibly be the next step in these lawsuits? Absolutely. If and when these suits are all filed, Watson has a right to know and fully understand what the charges are against him, including the names. Having said that, though, Brian, those names could be kept confidential and maybe never revealed to the public. And, you know, you've seen this in other cases like Weinstein and Epstein, where they start out as anonymous. But at the end of the day, some of these individuals might actually come forth and say what their names are. All right, we'll keep eyes on that and see whether or not these names get published. Gene, Terry, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us here on Law and Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America. It only applies to Chad Daybell and not Lori Vallow Daybell's prosecution for now. The Boulder supermarket mass shooting, 10 victims identified, including a police officer. The suspect charged with 10 counts of murder. We will hold the evildoer responsible extent of the law. Actor Army Hammer accused of raping a woman and slamming her head against a wall. The accuser speaking out about what she says was a four-hour long attack. I feel immense guilt for not speaking out sooner. Plus, the jury now seated in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Our expert analysis as the first officer charged with murdering George Floyd goes to trial. We're being a little bit naive when we ask people to put everything to the side. Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Decide the fate of the former officer accused of murdering George Floyd have been selected. 
Law and Crime's Jim Johnson is in Minneapolis and is here to tell us why one of those jurors could still be cut. Brian, a jury is fully seated in Derek Chauvin's trial. Attorneys and the judge agreed on a final juror, a white man in his 20s who works as an accountant. He said that he supports police, but didn't think four officers needed to respond to a counterfeit bill call. And also said Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for five to ten minutes seemed unnecessary. Here he is, defense attorney Eric Nelson questioning him about that. And ultimately, you also remember that the initial autopsy said George Floyd did not die from suffocation, but a different autopsy came to a different conclusion. The question being is, you may or may not hear evidence about different medical opinions. Based on your role as a juror, can you set aside everything that you may have heard beforehand and focus exclusively on the evidence as it's presented in court? Yes. Of the 15 jurors seated in Derek Chauvin's trial, six are people of color, nine are white, nine of the jurors are women, and six are men. Now, 12 jurors and two alternates will be sworn in on Monday. Judge Peter Cahill said the whole point of a 15th alternate juror is in case any of the 14 have to be dismissed or excused before that. Now, Judge Cahill also said that he plans to release the entire jury pool after the 14 are sworn in. Opening statements begin Monday at 9 a.m. Brian. Thanks, Kim. And as jury selection comes to a close, we ask psychologist and law and crime expert Dr. John Del Torre if we can really expect jurors to be fair and impartial once testimony in Chauvin's trial begins. I think we're being a little naive. I, I think that for the most part, people can put sort of the weight of the information to the side, but they can't put the information to the side because as soon as they start hearing evidence, as soon as they start hearing the cases being presented, it's automatically going to trigger all of the memories, all of the information that they had already had in their brain. And you have to already be in a mindset to know that what you've been exposed to is such a limited amount of information. I think that will be key in sort of both uh, thematically, both cases that are going to be presented, which are there's so much more that you need to know. You only got a small bit. And only those people who are open-minded to hear and can look and self-reflect and know that I only know a little bit, I need to know more in order to make a decision. That's the kind of people you want. Joining us today is civil rights attorney and managing party partner at the Cochrane firm, Brian Dunn and Terry Austin. Brian, the jury is set, but one will be cut before the trial starts. What do you think of the jury so far and only having two alternates? Well, one of the things that we have to understand, Brian, is that this has never happened before. The video that we've seen is completely unprecedented. The racial dynamics that are, bringing, uh, that are brought up are, are unique, but this has never happened before. And when you start looking at the makeup of the jury, you start to consider the fact that there are millions and millions of people watching everything that's happening in that tiny courtroom. This makeup seems to go over the top in terms of reflecting the diversity of the county and the nation. They seem to be understanding that this is a very public situation in a private area. And when you're talking about the 15th juror, uh, what the people need to understand is that those two alternates are not going to do anything unless something happens to one of the original 12. The problem is, if you run out of more than two of them, you're going to be left without a juror. I strongly disagree with the idea of letting that 15th juror go, Brian.
I would as well. Terry, the demographics, as Brian touched on, of the jury is way more diverse than the county, city, and state the trial is in right now, right? Wow. Yeah, that's right. There's no question about it. I mean, we know that we have to give Chauvin a fair and impartial jury under the Sixth Amendment. But right now we know that the jury is 60% white, 26% black, and 13% multiracial. That's compared to Hinneman County, which is 74% white, 14 black, and 3% multiracial. Now, the numbers are different, but I don't think those numbers are really the issue. I think the issue is what did you think about that video and whether or not you could be fair and impartial? So I think that's the crucial issue here, Brian. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's not the color of the skin of the jurors who's making the decision. It's the evidence being presented in their mindset there. Be sure to tune in to the Law and Crime Network for gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial in the murder of George Floyd. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, a special homicide attorney is added to one of the so-called doomsday cult couples case, but not the other yet. But first, the allegations of sexual assault and the criminal investigation into Army Hammer, the kinky accusations he is claiming were consensual, next. of sexual abuse are being made against actor Army Hammer, and now the LAPD is investigating. Law and Crime's Anjanette Levy is here with one woman's story and the high-powered lawyer representing her. Brian, this latest accuser says that Army Hammer essentially tortured her and that she feared he might kill her, but the lawyer for Army Hammer says the woman's allegations of abuse simply are not true. I met Army Hammer on Facebook in 2016 when I was 20 years old. I fell in love with him instantly. But the woman only identified as Effie says the relationship took a dark turn. Effie has a photo of herself with Hammer. She says he became emotionally, sexually, and physically abusive, raping her at one point for four hours. He beat my feet with a cross so they would hurt whatever step I took for the next week. During those four hours, I tried to get away, but he wouldn't let me. We all should avoid victim shaming and victim blaming. Famed women's rights attorney Gloria Allred represents Effie. It is important to emphasize that even if a sexual partner agrees to certain sexual activity, she still has a right at any point to withdraw her consent. Whether the activity was consensual is the key question. Hammer's attorney, Andrew Brettler, shared this Instagram screen grab with Law and Crime, in which he says Effie stated, I'm not saying he raped me. And in January of this year, she typed, I didn't say anywhere. It was not consensual. Now, Brettler goes on to say that all of Hammer's sexual encounters have been consensual, and he actually provided us with a text message that he says Effie sent to Army Hammer in which she appeared to be the aggressor and Hammer actually rejected her advances. The LAPD would only confirm that Army Hammer is the named suspect in an alleged sexual assault allegation that was filed with the police department back in early February. Brian? Thanks, Anjanette. Here to discuss the allegations against actor Army Hammer is civil rights attorney Brian Dunn and Terry Austin. Terry, statute of limitations for the age of the case, not likely a problem here for the prosecution, but what about that text from Hammer's lawyer? Those texts look really damaging to me because that's the crux of the case. Was this consensual or not? She's claiming 
that while some of her encounters were consensual, there were several that were not. If, in fact, these text messages are talking about those instances and saying that they were consensual, then that is really going to hurt her case and it's going to support his case. And technology will be a part of this and all that evidence is going to come in. So I think that it boils down to he said, she said, and what the evidence is going to support. Brian, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, these cases have redefined sexual assault prosecution. With what you know so far, could Army Hammer be next on that list? The reason why I wouldn't put him in that category, Brian, is he hasn't achieved in life as much as those people have achieved. Uh, he hasn't achieved the level of notoriety that would cause him to fall as, to, as precipitously as a Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein. But nevertheless, the idea that we have a situation where there is a very serious allegation of very serious, uh, serious misconduct, torture, rape, we have to look at it broader than just these two players and think about how it is that we can expand our consciousness towards the idea of date rape and the things that people do in the privacy of their own home having very long, you know, long-term consequences. Exactly. Now, Angela, what's the fallout been for Army Hammer so far? Yeah, the fallout's been pretty significant. So far, his publicist has dropped him. He's also locked out on several projects, some film projects. And it's not just from this specific allegation from Effie. She's saying this occurred back in 2017. This all started back when some women started posting on social media about Hammer's alleged sexual fetishes. Interesting to see how this plays out. As you all have pointed out, there, I think there's more investigation that's needed here to find out what the truth is. As I said earlier, the LAPD is investigating. We will keep tabs on whether or not a criminal case starts up. I know a civil one hasn't started yet, but you better believe that one will be close uh, to that of the criminal case. Thank you, everyone. Coming up on Law and Crime Daily, a judge as a special...